Cartmails in Conversation, Patents Update. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Cartmails in Conversation. I'm Daniel Wise, and in today's discussion, I'll be joined by two of my colleagues, Jenny Finnegan and David Thompson. Hi Dan. Hello Dan. In this episode, we will be taking a look at some recent developments in European patent practice. First, we've got Jenny discussing remittal from the EPO Boards of Appeal, and then David will take us through a recent decision on plausibility from the UK courts. So, Jenny, remittal. As I understand it, the EPO Boards of Appeal have the power to exercise the powers of any of the um, instances that they're reviewing the decision of. In what circumstances, though, will it decide not to exercise those powers? When does it remit a case back to that instance and uh, let them carry on the case themselves? So the primary function of an appeal is to consider whether the appealed decision is correct. So remittal generally occurs in cases where essential questions regarding the patentability of the claim subject matter have not yet been examined by the Department of First Instance. So an example of that might be if an opposition division decides that claims add subject matter. In general, the opposition division would then not consider any of the other grounds of opposition. If the Board of Appeal reverses the decision on added matter, then the board may wish to remit the case for initial examination of the other grounds by the opposition division. Similarly, if an opposition division upholds a patent, then it will typically not consider one or more lower auxiliary requests. If the board reverses that decision, then the board may wish to remit the case for examination of those auxiliary requests. In general, the practice of remittal can allow a party to have each aspect of their case heard and examined at the Department of First Instance and then reviewed in appealed proceedings if necessary. Okay, so that that sounds like a positive thing for the parties. They they sort of get two bites of the cherry, I guess, to to argue their case. Do they always have a right to, uh, to two instances like that? No. So it's been established in the case law that there's no fundamental right to have each aspect examined at both levels. Um, so it is entirely possible for a Board of Appeal to decide any issues not examined at first instance. The EPC itself left the, it entirely to the Board's discretion whether to take final decision or remit the case. In considering whether to remit, uh, the board generally considered factors such as um, whether new facts or evidence have been submitted and the party's interest in examination at the two instances. Those would be factors in favour of remittal. Arguments against remittal tended to centre around reaching a conclusion to proceedings more quickly, both for procedural economy and to avoid economic uncertainty. A general criticism of the EPO has been that since all issues are not typically assessed at first instance, it's possible for a case to essentially ping pong between first instance and appeal proceedings multiple times. In practice, in general, it was relatively common for boards to remit cases for further prosecution of unexamined grounds. Yeah, I've certainly seen that ping pong situation happen in in quite a few of my cases where, you know, you get a decision from the opposition division on, as you say, something like added matter, 
It then takes four or five years for the boards uh, to, to reverse that decision. And then they send it back down and you're back where you started in another five years of uh, a first instance and appeal. Um, so, so what changed in, in 2020? So in 2020, the revised rules of procedure of the boards of appeal came into force um, and various articles were amended with these revisions. But the one that's particularly relevant to remittal is Article 11. Before 2020, Article 11 was only relevant to relatively rare cases in which fundamental deficiencies were apparent in the first instant proceedings, in which case the board should generally remit the case unless there were special reasons not to. The revised Article 11 retains that steer that, as a rule, cases with fundamental deficiencies should be remitted. However, the article was also revised to apply generally to all cases before the board and specifies that the board shall not remit a case unless there are special reasons to do so. So this revision constitutes a substantial change in the scope for Article 11, broadening its relevance from niche cases of fundamental deficiencies to all cases before the boards, and appears to provide a legislative push away from remittal. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I guess that's how it's how it's worded. Did, did they give that as a reason for that change to Article 11 that they were trying to push away from from remittal? Yeah, it certainly seems so. So the the rules of procedure were published with explanatory remarks setting out the legislative intent, and the stated aim for revised Article 11 was to reduce the likelihood of that ping pong effect and those very long proceedings that stretch out over years. Um, the notes also state that the board should take that into account in exercising its discretion, so considering those factors. The notes also emphasise that the boards still have discretion over whether to remit by stating that whether special reasons exist is to be decided on a case-by-case basis. However, the final statement was that if all issues can be decided without an undue burden, a board should normally not remit the case. Hmm. So that definitely does sound like they're, they're pushing back on, on remittal. You've got to have special reasons, the board shouldn't usually remit. Is that what we're seeing in practice? Surprisingly not. Um, despite the revisions and their explanatory notes, the boards have still been regularly remitting cases for further prosecution on grounds not considered in the appealed decision. Typical reasoning provided by the boards includes that the primary object of the appeal proceedings is to review the decision under appeal in a judicial manner. Several decisions cite this as an overriding consideration, which takes precedence over Article 11 and justifies the boards not examining grounds which were not assessed in the appealed decision. Similarly, some decisions have stated that it would constitute an undue burden on the board to carry out initial examinations. (laughs) <laughs> trying to save themselves a bit of time. So so what, what's the take-home message then, do you think, from, from this? So generally, despite the revision of the rules of procedure of the Boards of Appeal, the boards do not appear to be changing their behaviour much in practice when it comes to remittal. And they still appear to be open to remitting in lots of cases. In particular, the odds of being granted a remittal are still high in cases where essential questions regarding patentability have not yet been examined by the Department of First Instance. But even in other circumstances, we've seen some surprisingly generous decisions on remittal. So it might be worth taking a punt on a request for remittal, even if you don't believe that your reasons are that special. No, interesting. Thank you, Jenny. I think that's uh, it is an area where 
practice perhaps hasn't changed as much as we were expecting when those new rules of procedure came into force. And uh, I don't know what the reason for that is. Maybe that the work pressures that the boards are under is such that they just can't review cases that that maybe in the past they, they, that there was a hope that they might have done. Um, so we'll have to have to wait and see if that changes. Thank you. So let's move on to uh, David, who is uh, talking about an interesting UK decision uh, from the High Court of England and Wales recently. This is uh, BMS uh, and Sandelson Teva. So, David, let's give us an overview of the facts of this case. What what was it all about? Sure. Um, So this, well, just by way of introduction, um, this case related to BMS's drug Apixaban, um, which you might also know under the brand name Eliquis. And Eliquis is used for the treatment of certain thromboembolic disorders, and it's been a very successful blockbuster drug. And yeah, this trial resulted from Sandoz and Teva bringing separate revocation actions against BMS's new chemical entity patent, which was covering Eliquis, um, as well as the associated SPC of that patent. And in their revocation actions, Sandoz and Teva essentially had run the same arguments, and the main attack against the patent was based on the concept of plausibility. So they argued that the patent application did not make it plausible that a Pixaban would have any useful activity against the factor 10A target enzyme. But I'll not bother um, going into any detail about what factor 10A does now, but basically you can treat thromboembolic disorders by inhibiting this enzyme. But yeah, it's well known nowadays that a Pixaban is a very good factor 10A inhibitor, hence why it's such a successful drug. But Sandoz and Teva were trying to say that the patent was invalid because they thought that this effect was not plausible from the teaching in the application. <laughs> so you've used this word plausible quite a bit there, David. I don't remember plausible being in the EPC. <laughs> what, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so um, it's a concept that um, has arisen in European patent practice, um, and it comes up um, when you're considering inventive step or sufficiency. So it's arisen from the EPO case law as a response to overly broad claims and to prevent so-called armchair inventors from filing speculative patent applications. So the assessment of plausibility would basically ask whether there is enough teaching in an application to suggest that the disclosure in the application solves the technical problem that the application says that it solves. And you have to do this assessment based on the information in the applications filed, as well as the common general knowledge of the skilled person at the filing date. And in the UK, um, yeah, this plausibility concept is not a ground for revocation per se, but a patent that is found to lack plausibility can be revoked for lacking an inventive step or for lacking sufficiency. So the, so the UK applies this concept. And, and how did it arise in the in the BMS and Sander case? Well, yeah, in this case, the judge felt that the patent application in question contained no detailed numerical data relating to the inhibition of factor 10A by Apixaban specifically. So basically, BMS had to try and prove that there was enough other data in the application as filed that would make the skilled person think that this inhibition of factor 10A by Apixaban was plausible. And to do this, BMS had to rely on several different areas of the application to base their arguments on and say that these areas, um, either alone or taken together, would be enough to get over this threshold of plausibility that the case law requires. So it sounds like they did have some support in the uh, patent for this this concept. What kind of things did they refer to? Yeah, so um, there was a couple of different areas they relied on. Um, so the first area was there was an important paragraph in the application that essentially said that some compounds of the present invention were found to have inhibitory constants of less than or equal to 10 micromolar. 
Um, and this paragraph was one of the few areas in the application that the judge felt actually provided some biological data for the compounds. But um, you might appreciate that this paragraph doesn't really disclose any specific data for any of the compounds, nor does it disclose a particularly low value for the inhibitory constant. Um, so the judge wasn't really convinced that this point was enough to provide plausibility, so we looked at some other ones. Um, and another area of the application that BMS relied on was the fact that the example said that a significantly larger quantity of apixaban had been produced than any other compound that was disclosed as having been synthesized. Um, but again, the judge felt that this didn't necessarily mean that apixaban was a good factor 10 inhibitor because he felt that there were other reasons why the patentee might have synthesized such a large quantity of one drug. Um, for instance, um, the synthesis might have just performed better for apixaban, which led to a higher quantity of product being produced. So you couldn't infer that um, the patentee thought that it was a better inhibitor. And then, yeah, other points that BMS relied on were based on the structure and functional groups of apixaban. Um, so they compared aspects of the structure against all of the other synthesized compounds in the application and also compared it against prior art inhibitors that were known at the priority date. But for various reasons, again, the judge wasn't convinced this reasoning would make the skilled person think that it was plausible that a Pixaban was a good factor 10 inhibitor. So overall, um, the judge felt that these aspects of the application weren't enough to show that the application made it plausible that a Pixaban would be an effective inhibitor and in turn find the patent to be invalid um, for lacking plausibility, essentially. So that's, that feels like a, a relatively strict approach of, of plausibility there, particularly when, you know, the application and the patent said that said that these compounds were active and had a particular level of activity. Um, you know, I thought you would take the document on face value and, uh, and assume that to be true and, and therefore it's plausible that these compounds have that activity. Do you, do you, I mean, do you think the UK was being strict in this case? Yeah, um, it seems like the UK is taking quite a strict approach towards um, plausibility. Um, so in this case, certainly the parties have presented the judge with a range of UK and EPO case law um, relating to this concept of plausibility and the legal principles. But the leading case in the UK on plausibility is the Supreme Court's 2018 decision in Warner-Lambert v. Generics. And the Supreme Court in Warner-Lambert applied a relatively strict plausibility threshold, which maps closely onto um, a line of case law, which is known as the ab initio plausibility line of case law in the EPU. This kind of line of case law is one of several plausibility standards um, that's currently being considered by the EPU's enlarged Board of Appeal in the G2 of 21 referral. But yeah, just chat a bit more about the ab initio plausibility standard. Um, this means that a technical fact is considered implausible by default and that the applicant must show that the skilled person would have reason to consider the effect plausible based on the teaching of the applications filed and the common general knowledge. Um, and the judge in the Aliquis case said that he was bound by the UK Supreme Court's judgment in Warner-Lambert, so he had to apply this relatively high standard to BMS's patent, um, which might be why that we saw um, a decision against the patentee in this case. So it isn't enough just to say these compounds are active. You've, you've got to show they're active. Yeah, exactly. There must be um, a certain level of teaching in the application that would make it plausible. Yeah. yeah I, it's quite I, I guess standard. the difficulty there is sort of how much information and in what format does it need to be? I mean, what's the difference between a, a sentence saying these compounds all have less than X activity in this assay and a table showing that they have less than X activity in an asset. Well, qualitatively, what's the difference? Why is one plausible and one not plausible? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it seems tricky from this case. You know, he didn't set out the exact standard he would apply. But yeah, I mean, there, I think 
part of the issue was there was no detailed numerical data. So if that is a table as opposed to just saying some compounds of less than 10 micromolar, um, that apparently isn't enough. So something about the way to present the data in the application as, as filed, I guess. Is this all going to get resolved by the EPO enlarged board referral then? Are we going to get a clearer answer on where to draw this line? Well, um, yeah, I suppose we, we would hope so. Um, so yeah, as I mentioned, there's a G2 of 21 referral coming up. Um, which is all about plausibility. Um, and the referred questions seek to find out in what situations can post-published evidence be used to support a technical effect. So basically, what is the threshold for plausibility? Um, and the referral is needed because there's an inconsistency in the case law. So I've already discussed the one line of case law, the AB in issue plausibility line, which is being followed by the UK courts. And the other lines of case law in the referral are the AB in issue implausibility line and the no plausibility line. So according to the ab initio implausibility approach, a patent would be considered plausible only if there are no legitimate reasons to doubt that the technical effect is achieved at the filing date. And the no plausibility line of case law would reject the concept of plausibility altogether, um, meaning that post-published data could be relied on to support a technical effect so long as that technical effect is either explicitly mentioned in the application or at least derivable from it. Um, so basically, both of these other lines of case law would be more lenient towards patentees than the UK's ab initio plausibility approach. Um, but we're going to have to wait and see what approach the EPO um, takes when it reaches its decision in G2 of 21 as to which is the correct line to apply. Um, indeed, in the, the Eliquis trial, the judge actually acknowledged that the result of the G2 of 21 referral will be extremely important for the EPO and for all EPC member states. But he didn't seem to let this uncertainty around plausibility impact his decision to revoke BMS's patent. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see where the enlarged board goes on this issue. Uh, do, do we have any idea when that decision will be issued? I, I don't. <laughs> okay. The <laughs> word on the street is it's probably going to be later this year, but uh, probably towards the end of this year or uh, early next. I mean, it's obviously... There are a lot of cases that it's going to impact on, and, and the EPO will sometimes stay cases uh, if they're solely dependent on the answer to a enlarged board referral. And so I, I imagine there's sort of a backlog slowly increasing at the EPO of cases that really need the enlarged board's guidance on this point. And so mm. there will certainly be pressure on the on the board to, to, to think about it. But it's, it's a really tricky, it's a really tricky area to, to get right. Well, thanks, David. That was a really interesting discussion. Uh, and that just leaves it to me to thank everybody for listening. And uh, please join us again next time. Mm-hmm.